0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kalani Nicole, founder of Transfer Gallery, among many other things. We'll discuss her work with digital artists, including in the NFT space. So welcome to the show, Kalani.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time now. I'm really big fan of the work you do as a gallerist and, and influencer in the digital art space. Uh, but for, for listeners who aren't already fans like me, uh, I wonder if you could, you could tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, the kinds of things you've done in the past, and, and how you got interested in, in digital art.
1: Yeah, cool. Thanks. I've been curating for uh, over a decade now um, and have also a professional practice in technology, which stretches back further. So about 15 years now working in user experience. So how humans interact with computers and other kinds of virtual experiences. Um, And I bring that thinking into my work in the gallery. I got started uh, with a curatorial collective uh, after my undergraduate studies in Philadelphia and kind of found the specialty of net art. I was working on the web. That was my primary source of income after college. And it kind of made sense just to start doing studio visits with artists in that environment. And actually, I had my first studio visit in the real world with an artist called Travis Smalley in New York many years ago. And the artist took me into the studio and put me in front of the computer (laughs) and showed me work. And that was sort of a moment that set me on a path, right, to really uh, invest and understand uh, this culture that has a rich history before it as well, Um, and then be experimenting really openly in my gallery, maintaining my professional practice alongside my curatorial practice and sort of exhibition design explorations at Transfer um, and doing that now um, we're going to be celebrating eight years this year. Uh, founded in 2013 in New York City, there for six years. Uh, moved to LA, was there for two years um, and now I'm down in Miami and uh, checking out the scene down here. I'm also uh, part of something called The Current which is a museum which is a sort of experiment in distributed collecting and new ideas of collecting and how institutions might work. Um, And so that's an experiment that started in 2016. It evolved into a nonprofit trust and a collection of contemporary art in 2018. And we're now growing in 2022 with a big project, which will also be focused down here in Miami. So it's sort of a new direction for um, myself personally, and for some of these projects I've been involved in. Um, and I'll maybe stop there by way of background. There's a couple other newer initiatives I've been involved in. One of them is called Protean DAO, and it's a time-based media conservation DAO, and it's focused on uh, the specialized labor of time-based media and how we might make new connections between that uh, capital to support that labor um, and where that fits in an institutional model, maybe in a new way. Um, So that's another project and interest of mine.
0: So maybe you could say a little something about where the digital art world kind of was when you first started curating, investigating, putting shows together and founding Transfer Gallery and how it's kind of developed or changed since then.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, There have been great media art galleries for decades now. Howard Wise is a great gallerist that decades ago was sort of thinking about new forms of access for art, new kinds of artistic practice, artists who were experimenting with television at the time. Um, and that evolves through to the current day. Uh, gallerists like Postmasters have been in operation now for a few decades themselves. And that was sort of where I saw some experimentation in You know, net art, internet art, different kinds of computational art, algorithmic art. Um, But when I entered the scene in 2013, there were very few spaces that were kind of specialized and focused on that. And I think the thing that transfer really uh, did well was focus on giving the entire space over to one artist at a time, and really having the gallery be completely malleable in what it means to present the work. And so It oftentimes wasn't a white cube. It didn't feel like a gallery. It felt more like a stage or a way to enter and engage the sort of world building that artists who are working in simulation are doing um, and a way to enter into that virtual space that can be a shared experience and initiate a dialogue. So that was the work that I did with artists for uh, six years at Transfer. It was very focused, one artist at a time. Um, towards the end of my time in Brooklyn, I also started to invite other curators into my space to see what they might do with it um, and to just understand uh, my practice as well in relation to how other gallerists work with artists. And that was really cool. I worked with a gallerist called Up4 Gallery in Portland, Oregon. Theo Downis lagin is the gallerist. That was a super amazing collaboration. I just learned so much about um, the care that different kinds of patrons can give to artists and what it means to Uh, Help develop an artist in the market and in the marketplace. Um, Amy Freeberg from San Francisco, she runs a gallery called Cult Exhibitions. She was another one who came into the space and I've learned so much from Amy. And you'll probably get the theme when I'm talking uh, of really learning from peers and, and working very collaboratively. And so Transfer was always based on that kind of collaboration and it really functions, you know, from a logistics perspective, financial support perspective. It's it's more, you know, a, an act of of stewardship where I'm sort of supporting experimentation. Um, I don't represent artists as a relationship. I represent specific inventory that we develop collaboratively. Oftentimes, my artists bring a lot of resources to the table, and a big part of our relationship is talking about what they can contribute and what I can contribute. Um, and that's been an evolution uh, as the gallery has changed. And now a market has shown up for this kind of work in a big way, which again, changes my relationship to artists. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that evolves. But in the bigger picture, I see myself more moving more towards this relationship of caring longevity through something like the current and thinking about institutions and archives um, and how the work really lasts through time.
0: So could you talk a little bit about Sort of specifically what the market looked like, how the market market worked, who was collecting, sort of the, the details of what that was like when you started, as opposed to how it's developed since then, especially recently?
1: Yeah, there weren't very many collectors there were (laughs) maybe a dozen um, collectors focused on media art who were really pioneers and leading the way. Many of these collections have public facing aspects to them. Um, One that gave a lot of support to transfer in our early days is the Toma Foundation. They have a media art collection and have been collecting more experimental works. They have a really cool acquisition process. Institutions, of course, we're starting to collect this work more and more in 2013 at that time. Um, very, very few private collectors. I was doing art fairs. Um, I remember being at the NADA art fair in New York City and I was showing a website and um, people would come up to the booth and say, why would I buy something that anyone can see for free on the internet? <laughs> so I was really experimenting with the place of distributed works a long time ago within the framework of the scarcity of the contemporary art world. Um, and, you know, that really started to change even before the pandemic time, you saw more and more artists working with media and doing so in really critical and interesting and visible ways, um, leveraging some of the affordances of web two, right, and becoming more visible as entities, artists themselves, uh, on Instagram, and and, you know, similar platforms. So I think that was a big evolution. And then, of course, As COVID hit, it was kind of this moment where everyone showed up to where we've been, (laughs) right? Myself and the artists thinking about this as like the primary area of practice. Uh, Everyone now was online all the time and living that reality. Um, And so that has just completely shifted how people understand what Transfer Gallery is and what it's about. And obviously now with NFTs since March, There is, you know, it hasn't even been a year yet. (laughs) There is a whole new body of collectors. Um, People think of it as a sort of massive and sprawling set of collectors. I don't think I feel that way. Um, We know pretty clearly from a lot of data analysis that has happened, that's been very public, that there are very few collectors who control the NFT market. The whales, right, is what they call them. Um, They're mostly anonymous and they're doing most of the purchasing and collecting um, just by volumes and quantity of transactions as well. Um, but that being said, there are a whole lot of people now in the world (laughs) who get what it means to own an ephemeral art object. And they see value in that the value they see, right. I do scare quotes when I say value there, because the value they see is as a financial instrument. And it's not the same kind of value that myself as a gallerist within the context of the contemporary art world is accustomed to talking about. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different set of values and it's, it's been really interesting to see this collector base emerge.
0: It seems like there's always sort of, at least to some degree, a dialogue between art practice and the art market as mediated through all the different people who participate in those conversations, uh, especially in kind of the last year or two, as things have really started to change or develop in sort of, kind of perhaps unexpected and and um and interesting ways have you seen the kind of collector base change or things people are interested in change um and if so you know how have artists sort of in your experience responded to that how have you kind of thought of that in terms of what your role is as a gallerist
1: Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. I've really been tearing apart what it means to be a gallerist in this system, where there are so many failures at so many levels, and the art world is really in a place sort of of crisis in uh, values around funding and um, the implications that has on cultural heritage and all sorts of other things. So, you know, coming out of pandemic times and the black lives matter movement and thinking about redistributing wealth and new forms of support and artist equity in a whole different way right cuz artists lost their their entire livelihoods overnight many of them right their ability to travel to speak about their work to present their work exhibition budgets all of that so um, my role as a gallerist now has really shifted, and I think that's what "Pieces of Me" the exhibition we were just discussing, "Pieces of Me" dot online you can view it there. Uh, it's all about doing something that isn't about money in a space where everything else is (laughs) Um, and yeah it was a a very personal conversation with artists about the value around their work how we value their work how we price their work that was an interesting experiment nothing is for auction the new market has been setting its own value on works and we said what if an artwork has a value (laughs) the way it does in the art market and so we assigned it a value uh, in ETH at the time when the exhibition was launched which we knew that would be volatile. We didn't know at the time which way it would go. Um, so, um, you know, it's been, it's been a whole sort of conversation around these kinds of things. Um, and one of the big propositions and pieces of me is how can a gallery get out of the way and, and position artists to launch an artist-owned infrastructure. So the way that the exhibition works is that 70% of the proceeds go directly to the artist when the work sells and the 30% is redistributed to everyone in the exhibition. So you can imagine you know, a more mature career artist uh, than being able to support a community of peers. And I thought it was an interesting experiment in like how might we mitigate risk in, in a volatile market. Um, it's a proposition that we're still implementing right now. And so many new tools have been emerging around DAOs and decentralized organizations. Um, so multi-sig, safes, Right. Where you can have uh, an authenticated group of individuals connected and um, make group decisions or disperse funds, things like that. Um, So I've been really blessed to work with Harm Van Den Dorpel. He's an artist based um, in the Netherlands, and he also uh, is an engineer and has been selling um, media art on the blockchain for many years um and his perspective i think really helped shape how we brought this collective of artists together and put out this proposition
0: could you say a little something about how this particular exhibition came to pass sort of you know what was the kind of circumstances surrounding deciding to do it how did you initially conceptualize what it was going to look like you know, and choose the artists you wanted to include. And then I'm especially interested in sort of what the artists reaction to the proposition were. I mean, did they have different perspectives on what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it and how they wanted to present it to the public? Um, and sort of what were their reactions to the kind of um, decisions around how to, you know, ultimately structure the project?
1: Yeah. Thank you for the great question. Yeah. Um- no one knew what the hell was going on when this first started in March. And like, I, I think we we all still don't or we're constantly curious and ready for something new to be going on. Um, even just like watching ENS and the way that that redistribution has happened this week, for example, is very interesting. Um, but we set up a discord (laughs) like you do in web three. Um, and many of the artists came in there, but we had one-on-one conversations, which is how you curate an exhibition, right? It was a studio visit. And we sat with folks and we talked about value and exchange. We explained how to get a crypto wallet. Um, we talked about a few other functional things to try and educate artists on web three. One of them is a digital twin of the metadata file talking about the fragility of a third party platform, right? A non-custodial platform still owns things like the metadata file. So we got really nerdy about this, right? We wanted to get an artist to upload their own metadata file and think about that kind of data ownership and that that kind of participation in Web3. Um, And that was a huge learning process. Um, But we got everything up and running. And when I say we, it was myself, the curator, Wade Wallerstein, uh, Harm Vanden Dorpel from Left Gallery, and Regina Harsani, who's our time-based media specialist and who kind of has been advising us from the beginning um, on resiliency and structure for a lot of our um, systems managing this show. Um, so yeah, we put up this show really quickly. Um, the, the curator, Wade Wallerstein, divided the works as we were bringing them together into rooms, which represent various sentiments about the moment uh, of crypto. And so when you visit pieces of online, you can see the rooms and the different room descriptions. Um, these aren't thematic necessarily, they're more about a spirit or a moment. Um, to answer your question more directly from the artist's perspective, uh, the, the exhibition represents a range of perspectives and that was really important to us. Uh, You know, we saw this sort of very polarized dialogue in the space of crypto. You either love it and it's amazing or you're FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, right? There's no room for critical dialogue, which is also something that's so important in the art world to be able to have a conversation back and forth about ideas. And so we wanted Pieces of me to be uh, an exhibition that represented people who were super bullish about crypto. They were all in, totally Kool-Aid and other people who completely rejected it for, you know, the sort of techno idealism and a lot of the issues around financialization of art. And then there are people in between who like didn't know what the hell to think and like weren't sure if they wanted to participate. So when the show launched on April 1st, nothing was actually minted yet. That was, it was sort of like, you know, it's an option you can choose to mint. And we wanted, there was was a lot of talk about the environmental issues at that point still. um, and and rightly so. And so, you know, we didn't want to process and, and sort of burn gas and do all of this if there wasn't going to be purchasing interest on chain. So developing this proposition of on chain, off chain was something we all did together through the discord. We shared pricing transparently with everyone. So there was a Google Doc where each person was pricing their work in ETH and trying to place a value, you know, from a gallery's perspective, we value based on previous sales, peer sales. You know, you're working in a different media with an online decentralized object. It was very strange because some of the artists in the show had great uh, sales history in the contemporary art world. And in the NFT world, it was four times as much. And so, where do you price a work, right? For an institution, maybe coming to see pieces of me and being interested. Um, And I think from the institutional perspective, also. Um, The fact that the NFT was kind of secondary to the artwork was really important because it got museum curators in. a lot of them don't have the means to I I don't think any any institution still actually has the means to collect an NFT work. Right. Because of the the implications of that. Um, And I think the ICA Miami is still trying to acquire this CryptoPunk, which is a gift from a collector but there have been complications, I believe, um, about getting that insured correctly and into the collection. So it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. But the fact that a a collector or curator could come and think about an off-chain acquisition uh, from the show, I think let people feel more open to exploring what NFTs were all about. I think it immediately gave them an in where they felt comfortable to think about it and come and Come to the video lounge space that I had shown you earlier to have that kind of face-to-face conversation um, about the work.
0: So I want to talk a little bit more about that because i can I can tell from from your projects and from speaking to you earlier that you're very familiar with the kind of long-standing history of conversations around value and you know what it means to have an art market and what it means for artists to have a kind of ongoing investment in the art that they that they produce how have you seen those conversations being inflected by the sort of really rapid and at least in my experience often quite unexpected changes and developments that have happened happened recently and have you seen those kind of conversations sort of reflected in the spaces that you yourself have created
1: yeah so as people enter the exhibition we'll almost always have a conversation about pricing or value if you're talking about that kind of value or maybe social capital and the value required to build a market in the nft market and what you know What kind of energies and activities surround that value? So there's all kinds of conversations happening in these tours. Um, People come into the online viewing room we created. It's called a video lounge. And you enter the space and you're face-to-face like we are right now on a Zoom-like interface. Uh, It has some social features where you can jump in and out of conversations with other folks. So I host gatherings. We have a working group that is called On Value, which kind of emerged organically from a lot of these great conversations with people all over the world coming into the video lounge to see the works, talk through the artist examples, um, and think about these ideas a little bit more.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about specific works or specific conversations that you've had that you think have helpfully informed that conversation?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I wanted to talk about the work of uh, Cassie McQuatter. when I was mentioning earlier that there's all different kind of perspectives on the work. Cassie is one of the artists who completely rejects NFTs and doesn't want to participate in Ethereum at all um, for all of the implications that it sort of represents. And uh, she's an artist who makes online video games and has been doing that for years now. Um, She has a sprawling game called Black Room Everyone should check it out online, Cassie McQuader, Black Room. Um, and it's sort of all browser-based, again, all out for the public. And her and I have worked together on a solo exhibition where we talked about what it would mean to own portions of that game. So it's just to say she's well-versed in thinking about these issues and doesn't see NFTs as the moment or the right time or the right intention to go into a financialized relationship with her work in that way. So the work in the show that she presented, it's called more to me.txt. It was very important to her that the uh, viewer down click and download a text file and then open that text file on their computer and read the words that are representative of the work, which says this relationship means more to me than money. And so that's her offering in pieces of me. That's her perspective and her stance. And it's a very important work in the show. Um, there's a work by Danielle Brathwaite Shirley um, called Terms and Conditions. And it's an animated GIF. Um, and it is uh, something where the artist was thinking about what, uh, what it meant to uh, represent a set of values um, and how... The artist might put terms around how their work is used um, in the real world. So Danielle requests that everyone print out a still. Anyone who acquire this work print out a still of the um, of the work itself, which we provide at the time of sale, and display that in their space um, for a period of two years. And I would love to just read the text in the piece um, quickly. Terms and conditions, we are committed to making this space one that centers Black trans people. As part of our commitment, we agree to uphold Black trans voices, have a zero tolerance to anti-trans sentiment in the workplace, showcase and invest in the work of Black trans artists, make the space accessible to Black trans people. In entering the space, you are also agreeing to uphold these conditions. If you do not agree to these terms and conditions, then you must leave. So I think it's an artist, you know, really, really playing with what it means to display and agree to and perform terms and conditions. Um, it's a very powerful piece. Um, and then there are works like I would mention Oria Harvey also, um, has a work called Hand in the show. And, um, This is more than just an NFT, right? Ori is a pioneer in this field and has been making online video games for a long time. And she chose to make an offering, which is a multi-part online installation, public artwork, right? So the, the owner actually will acquire it by acquiring a domain name. And there's the artist website sales contract, which governs that kind of relationship where the collector is meant to maintain the work online at that URL for the public. It's part of the performance of the piece. Right. Um, and that's what happens when you acquire the work and you agree to that stewardship. So we've been developing a contract that includes that and many other components. It's also got an augmented reality component, um, which is another part of the work and there are platforms dependent on that. Um, so it's a process of really doing, you know, a deep artist interview and talking about, you um, her intent for how the work uh, is shown, engaged with, how it changes over time, how it might be updated or not, right? how it's meant to be treated. Um, so I think those are three really good examples that, that give you some ideas And there. There are so many amazing works and every artist I think really made a thoughtful offering here um, and they're one of one. I wanna mention one more thing. We thought very important to reintroduce the idea of the artist proof which in the art market is something that kind of lets the artist retain you know, rights and their own you know, equity over their work by holding an artist's proof. So as an artist's work rises in value, they then retain the proof, that's something they could sell later. So in Pieces of Me, we meant two tokens, even though they're one, they're one of one. Um, so it's one plus one AP, the artist gets a token in their wallet when a collector has passed a token. So those two tokens uh, reference each other in the edition, um and the idea is that a lot of the promise of the ERC721 and this new format is around um artist resale but the standard is still in its infancy so the resale rights are only enforced at the level of a non-custodial platform still and this is still how it functions in this current market um so that just means if you take it off platform to an open sea and you sell it, there's no way that the contract can execute and auto ensure that the artist gets their payment right. Um, but if an artist holds a token in their wallet, that is a way for an artist to ensure that they re- remain the, uh, the the holder of that value um, that their work might fetch in a, in an outside or more open market. And so we think that's a really important uh, sort of symbolic gesture as a part of this exhibition. Hope it develops into a system that works much more reliably, absolutely believe it can. And oftentimes, because I was very critical in the early Portions of the emergence of this boom, um, you know, people will say things like, don't you want artists to get paid? And of course, I mean, everything I do is based around trying to make artists' ideas visible and trying to understand a meaningful market around their work and the right ways to support and give longevity to their ideas. Um, and yeah, artists having cash is a big part of that. So. <laughs>
0: One thing that really jumps out at me from your description of putting the show together and working with the artists around it is it sounds like whether people accept or reject NFTs as a sort of new medium for transacting in art At the very least, the existence of this new medium is prompting new and interesting conversations about what the art market, what art ownership, and what transactions in art might look like.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I wonder what your own personal perspective on on NFTs are. It seems to me that in a lot of ways, the NFT market looks kind of like the art market, but also has a lot of really, really significant differences from the art market and that there are a lot of fine artists who seem to be engaging with it but also a lot of people doing very different kinds of things or at least superficially it seems like very different kinds of things. Uh, sort of what do you make of the art the the NFT market at this point in time what people are using it for what kind of work is being produced and sold and and wh- where do you see that going from here?
1: Um I think that the NFT market is about speculation and gambling and it always will be. It's built on those mechanics. Um, it's not the market that I'm in engaged with or really interested in being engaged with until it matures <laughs> a bit. Um, and I definitely see and believe that uh, more traditional collectors are going to start, finding value in time-based media art and ephemeral forms of art, not saying they'll enter the NFT market. I think those are two very different things, but clearly there is more value from a financial perspective, which you know, a collector who's in the contemporary art market is also in it for a financial reason. There are a lot of ideas and other things that lead. There's taste, there's aesthetics, there's different sets of values around the work and the history and the context that comes before it and after it for great collectors, also looking at emerging artists. Um, but just to say, it's also very financialized and I don't have a very idealistic view of the contemporary art market either. I mean, I've been showing websites at art fairs for (laughs) almost a decade now and playing with those dynamics um, and being very, very frustrated by some of them. But um, it's just to say, I do see absolutely, you know, a a lot more serious collecting interest um, from the contemporary art market in this kind of work. Um, And it's a really exciting time for Transfer Gallery because I have a pretty historic inventory of many, many artists. Um, And I am interested also on the other side as the NFT market matures and as collectors who fall in love with the idea of bringing artworks into their life and home and collection and becomes more than about speculation, I'm here for them. I'm ready to talk about art and show them art and show them a lot of um, what's happened before, creative ways to live with works of art. I'm thinking about that a lot. One of my little side, side, side projects right now is reside.ltd and it's just like a pitch, but it's an idea for how to teach people how to dwell with contemporary art in a new way. Um, I think that's a really important thing to uh, help develop a collector um, to, to teach them how to integrate into their lifestyle. For example, I have daytime and nighttime playlists. So you might have something brighter during the day that would be disruptive at night. So how can you kind of curate your living space and think about your collections, think about different displays, uh, you know, nerdy shit like resolutions and what looks good on a screen and what needs to be on a projector with maybe some projection mapping. So you don't have black bars on both sides, these kinds of ways to kind of treat, treat your work in a space. um, So, yeah, I guess overall, I'm like hugely optimistic. I think it's going to be fine. Um, I think we all see the NFT market for what it is uh, at this point after like the hype is now kind of settling a bit. Institutions are becoming a little more hip on DAOs, which I think is a really important shift because obviously, the emergence of decentralized economies is about much, much more than just financialization. Uh, It represents a potential for a new connected web and different kinds of ecosystems and uh, exchanges. So um, I'm really excited that, you know, the conversation is starting to evolve in those directions. And we're thinking more about how, as the keepers of governance, right? Cultural institutions are the ones who, how are experts actually in governance and what it means to tend to a cultural idea, a community, give it longevity, take care of it. Um, and they're becoming aware that, that, that that kind of expertise is something that this system is suited to um, really bring into public value in a new way.
0: As someone who's got considerable experience engaging in, actual transactions around, you know, ephemeral, conceptual, non-material digital artwork in a kind of more traditional contract form. Are there advantages, disadvantages to NFTs as compared to the more kind of traditional ways of accomplishing those kinds of art? transactions like when you when you as a gallerist or as a facilitator of those kinds of transactions think about the relative um appeal of different ways of approaching those transactions sort of what kind of things are most
1: salient to you yeah that's a great question i think that nfts really do not do the rigor that we find customary in the contemporary art market so um I want to point to the work of two women. Um, one is Zoe Miller, who just presented at the Institute. It's a screening series at the NYU IFA Time-Based Media Conservation Program. And she was talking about how uh, acquisition of time-based media essentially is a set of rights and rules and agreements. Um, and she references also the work of Lauren Van who, uh who is doing a dissertation um, right now on the, the 1970s artist rights contract. Um, and then also thinking about how it applies sort of in this new uh, economy that we're seeing. And one of the things that Lauren talks about is the social aspects of a contract where it's, you know, not just terms and conditions or, you know, sort of things you have to do or check off, but it's a sort of an understanding about how you as a collector uh, affect and your care and treatment of the work affects an artist and how an artist also their relationship to that work affects a collector. Um, and talking more about those kinds of um, sort of exchanges and agreements that a, an acquisition of time-based media art represents, right? Um, so typically there's an owner rights and obligations document, which specifically gives the collector exhibition rights for um, use in their own space and uh, public exhibition. In, uh, in a lot of cases for time-based media, there'll be a variant where an artist. Um, will allow work on a single channel, maybe at a smaller size for display in the home. However, when it's exhibited, it needs to have different parameters through installation design potentially, or different kinds of equipment to present to public audiences. So it's important to explicitly grant those rights because if a museum or an institution is looking to either acquire or show these works, they need those rights explicitly granted. NFTs do not have that. NFTs consist of three fields right now, right? which is a URI, a publicly hashed information field, and a metadata field, which is um, somewhat flexible. And for pieces of me, what we've done is inserted just a bunch of text, which represents our contract agreement, into the metadata field, just so it's accessible. And of course, it's not part of the standard. It's not yet something that can be adopted, but we hope that these kinds of explicit rights and usage information becomes more a part of the standard as it develops in the future.
0: Awesome. Well, Kalani, I wonder if in closing, you could just reflect on sort of where we've come so far this year, as it were um, in relation to sort of where things stand at the moment and whether you have any thoughts or hopes about what the sort of the future of NFTs in the fine art market could or should or might potentially look like going forward.
1: Yeah. I mentioned ENS earlier and we just saw the airdrop. So anyone who had registered a .eth address, prior to the snapshot they took on October 31st was distributed tokens for equity. And that was immediately money in people's hands for participating in this culture. Right. Um, I really hope that we see some of the non-custodial platforms do that kind of distribution, super rare experimented with it. Um, But these platforms really became wealthy and rose um, on the back of artist fees because it, was an expense to an artist to mint on these platforms. So you saw artists investing actual money in order to get that revenue and capture that value. Now, you know, it's a hundred times for many of these artists, not all of them, for sure. Um, the ones mostly who are best at social media per- performance and um, what I affectionately call y'all shilling, um, their work on a constant basis. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, I I really hope to see that those platforms think about redistributing wealth and reconsidering their 10% artist resale royalty to something that's more robust and um, builds some kind of expectation of longevity with their collectors, as opposed to being about trading uh, and speculation. And that kind of gambling, I think that would be a huge sea change if, like many people, started to realign their values in that way. Um, I also hope that institutions stop talking about NFTs and <laughs> see more ways to apply decentralized thinking to, um, yeah, pooling capital and also thinking about artist equity and, you know, what would it mean for a collection to be able to pay royalties to artists and how can we use new kinds of systems and connecting in peer to peer funding ways to enable uh, a redistribution of wealth and true artist ownership in those systems. Um, So I really hope that that move into web three is something that we all do um, with with patience and sincerity and maybe move away from a lot of the speculative um, trading and things we've seen. Um, That being said, it's a very optimistic position to hold. (laughs) So, (laughs) Let's see. Um, And I I do wanna say that one thing that is really moving in this space, um, which I respect a lot, is that some of the artists who have really made it are aggressively supporting other artists and that is so meaningful to see um and i hope we see that more also from private collectors um who have been successful uh really getting in there and and supporting the community of artists that made them made them that profit. Because <laughs> each time a work sells on the secondary, an artist gets 10% richer and a wealthy crypto bro gets 90% richer. So it uh, feels a little unequal to me. Um, I just, I, I hope we really start to think about what this accumulation of wealth represents culturally and in this moment. And it really feels like a grab and it really doesn't feel like we've done the things and the kinds of thinking we, we could do. Um, to really build in new systems of support in this moment.
0: Amazing. Well, Kilani, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and share all your insights about this space. You've got a lot a long history of of work in this area, and uh, I really learned a lot talking to you.
2: Thank you. Mm-hmm. From the faraway hills Painted the violets and the daffodils He put the purple in the twilight haze Then did a rainbow for the rainy days He dipped his brush into the blue summer skies To paint the love light in my darling's eyes He caught the magic of the look that thrills The old master painter from the faraway hills Oh, what a masterpiece he happened to do. My heart was the canvas where he painted you. What a beautiful job on that wonderful day. The old master painter from the hills far away. The old master painter from the faraway hills Painted the violets and the daffodils He put the purple in the twilight haze. Then did a rainbow for the rainy days He dipped his brush into the blue summer skies To paint the love light in my darling's eyes He caught the magic of the look that thrills The old master painter from the faraway hills Oh, what a masterpiece he happened to do My heart was the canvas where he painted you What a beautiful job On that wonderful day, the old master painter from the hills far away, far away, far away. The old master painter from the hills far away, far away.